Welcome back to the final episode of the season, with the exception of our EndNotes episode, of course, where we go over the sources that went into making this season. At the end of our last episode, we saw a shaky piece broken by the Iroquois, who murder Father Isaac Jogues, and then storm the fort at the front of the Richelieu River. We close the episode with the Iroquois crucifying a child outside of Trois-Rivières. The Iroquois would continue to incessantly attack the French along the St. Lawrence. They're Algonquian allies, and of course by this time, they're Huron allies to the west. Moving into the year 1647, all of New France only had 100 professionally trained soldiers sent from France. In 1648, 68 more were sent over. But 168 men were nothing compared to the thousands of Iroquois, braves who were armed by the Dutch and willing to fight. The authorities in New France organized themselves more tightly, whereas before in the St. Lawrence you would have a vague governor-general. Montreal had some autonomy in their own governor, while the rest of the colony followed whoever the governor was in Quebec City. Now Governor-General Montmagny, he established a ruling council where he asserted some control over the governor of Montreal. He also included the Jesuit superior, and this council with lesser elected officials made up the entirety of the government, executive, judicial, and legislative, as we would divide the powers of government today. With the governor's consolidation complete, he built himself a fine house, Chateau Saint-Louis, which would serve as the governor's mansion for a long time to come. Unfortunately for him, in the year 1648, Mount Magny is recalled as governor. This might have been a move of the Jesuits or the larger Catholic Church to assert more control over New France, maybe in reaction to the new government that he had just organized. A little bit of evidence to suggest that is that the job of governor was then offered to Maisonneuve, the governor of Montreal, which itself was a small religious community, firmly under the thumb of the Catholic Church. However, he refuses the job, finding Montreal to be more than enough work, and Mount Magny's lieutenant governor, Louis d'Albu, takes over. And so we have our illustrious leader, who valiantly stepped in after Champlain died, leave the job. We have the Iroquois attacking at every end of New France. And then in old France, we have the outbreak of a civil war. As you can imagine, a civil war took all official directives from France out of the story. Any funding or additional soldiers, anything like that, gone. New France only managed to receive support over this four or five year period from the Jesuits and had not the funds that they solicited through the publications of their Jesuit relations not come in, this might have been the end of New France right here. Conditions became so desperate in the colony, mostly because of the Iroquois attacks, that the governor had the Jesuit father, Droulet, reach out to the authorities in the ever-growing New England colonies. Droulet was having a lot of luck converting the local Abenaki in what we would now call the New England area, northern New England. And during this time, he pulled the Abenaki, along with the Penacooks and the Mohegans, and a lot of other uh, Algonquian groups from New England, into an alliance against the Iroquois. The New France authorities figured they could take this one step further and open up an alliance with the English settlers, who are allied with these Algonquian tribes themselves. As such, they sent the Jesuit father straight to the New England Confederation, which is a subject we'll learn about next season on this podcast. The New England Confederation was the combination of Massachusetts, the New Haven Colony, the Plymouth Colony, and Connecticut. And he tries, I'm sorry to say in vain, to open up a trade relationship with Quebec 
and Acadia on the side, and also to start a holy war of Christians versus the Iroquois. But both of these deals fall through. For one thing, the Puritans that controlled the New England Confederation, they were not fond of Catholics. And in fact, the Catholic influences or the Catholic traits of the Anglican Church are exactly what they tried to purify. The separatists among them, this is exactly what they were trying to separate themselves from. Sending a Jesuit priest was the absolute worst person uh, to send to New England to negotiate anything. But of course, by this time, the French Huguenots, who were Protestants, had been chased out of New France or forced to convert. And so they shot themselves in their own foot there. Frankly, the Iroquois were no threat right now to the English in New England. And there was no reason for them to go out of their way to attack them. Back to the western side of New France. All this wasted effort in trying to create some sort of alliance with New England authorities. The lack of any sort of direction or support from France proper in the middle of a civil war. And the overturning of leadership in New France meant they could provide very little support to their allies, the Huron, who by 1650 had been dispersed. The Confederation no more. Now instead of being assets and an important linchpin in their trading network of furs, they were dependents and required charity. And charity was exactly what the French people in New France could ill afford, as the entire trade network, along with the Huron, fell apart. But to the Iroquois, these wars weren't just about controlling the trade. They also wanted more members. Remember, the plagues had ravaged the Huron as, as well as the Iroquois, and the Iroquois were down in numbers. And so they would bring in Huron captives and adopt them, sharing very similar languages and culture the Huron would fit in quite nicely among the Iroquois. And so even after having taken everything that the Huron had and cutting off New France completely, they continued to find these pockets of refugees nestled in and out of New France of the Huron people or the, the Wendat people. All would seem truly lost for our little colony of New France. Authorities around this time in New England would officially cut off trade with New France intending to help choke out the colony. And many of the settlements beyond the garrisons, the first militia units were established for the first time. French traders began to find points north of the former Huron Confederacy in order to link up to this old damaged pelt network, ending up in the far north of Hudson's Bay. Determined that life would still go on, the Jesuits in Quebec extend their educational services all the way down to what we would consider elementary school. But this new burst of life would slowly wind down as the Iroquois would wear away at them with constant raids, just as they had done with the Huron. By 1653, the paid soldiers in New France were beginning to disband or otherwise go AWOL, disappear anyway from their posts. The debts incurred by the company of habitants or the community of habitants were not being paid. France still in a civil war, although winding down. Believe it or not, preparations were made to start abandoning the St. Lawrence. The Iroquois had won. New France was to end. And then at one point, a Mohawk army of 200 attacked the hospital just outside of Montreal. One of the founders of Montreal, Jeanne Mance, a woman who was inspired by a vision to go to the New World, we learned about in our last episode, and a man by the name of Lambert Kloss, they lead a small force to hold off the army of 200 Iroquois, eventually breaking their will and causing the Mohawk to retreat. And then another unlikely hero in our story, the Onondaga chief, Garonconti, who had very eloquently brokered a peace some years before between the French and the Iroquois, appeared in the St. Lawrence. And just as New France was ready to evacuate, 
he expresses to the French authorities that the Iroquois were ready for a peace. Now, many historians today point out that despite what the French record, the Iroquois never wanted to completely wipe out the French. As I've mentioned before, they wanted to open up trade with the French by getting rid of all of their other trading allies and thus have a monopoly over the furs going to the French because they wanted some of the French goods as well as the Dutch goods they were getting from Fort Orange in New Netherland. This may have been part of the reason why the Iroquois suddenly came to the negotiating table. Also, by the 1650s, they were ravaged by the same plagues that affected the Huron. They had taken on many Huron captives. These would include many of the people who were converted to Catholicism and were friendly with the Jesuits and the French. Simply, they had taken on so many captives because they were so low in number that they literally changed the political and genetic landscape of their own confederacy. The Iroquois were now quite different than they were 10 years before. Now the new governor de Lausanne of New France was left to do the negotiating. The only way that he could get the Iroquois to agree to a peace was to just make it a peace between the French and the Iroquois confederacy. All of the French native allies would not be part of the agreement. This might seem like a cold move, but remember, New France was ready to be abandoned. They didn't have very, uh, they didn't have very many cards on the table, so to speak. The uh, historian Bruce Trigger says, The simple truth was that because they were unable to resist the Mohawks any longer, the French abandoned their allies. Furthermore, the Jesuits were pushing the governor to make any sort of peace agreement because they were desperate to start missions inside of the Iroquois Confederacy. First, they wanted to tend to all these Huron captives who had converted and were taken by the Iroquois. Secondly, they wanted to use these captives, now adopted in the, into these Iroquois tribes, to begin spreading Catholicism. And in fact, in the peace agreement, Garen Conti requested that the Jesuits send a mission to Onondaga, the very heart of the Confederacy. The Jesuits were ecstatic about this. However, New France authorities thought that they were crazy. But as I've mentioned, the Catholic Church during this period was carrying New France. And as much as the governor was in no position to protect his native allies, he was definitely in no position to deny the request of these missionaries. And so with a peace settled in 1653, Father Simon Lemoyne, who was well-liked by the Mohawk already, made his way into Onondaga. The Iroquois had given New France a lifeline. The governor of Montreal, for the rest of the decade, starts taking on more and more colonists from France. New France was growing again. The Huron, who were scattered far to the west, were now settled and rebuilding the trade network in furs to their benefit and to the benefit of the French. Two Frenchmen, one by the name of Pierre Radisson and another by the name of, and I'm going to butcher this, Milliard Grossiliers, create a new network of trading pelts far up uh, to the north in Hudson's Bay, and more importantly, far out of the reach of the Iroquois. And so here we are, the furs are coming in, people are coming in, the Catholic missions are being set up. By 1656, what Lemoyne started by going to Onondaga was a small settlement called St. Marie among the Onondagas. It had seven priests and 50 other Frenchmen. Ah, oh, but there was still a darkness there, simmering beneath everything else, that it would inevitably boil over, of course. Now remember, this piece excluded the native allies. One harrowing image from our episode on the Huron Confederacy. The Huron, otherwise known as the Wendat people. Even though their confederacy was gone, the Iroquois wanted them badly. And there was no French protection over them. They weren't part of the agreement. And so in May of 1656, the Mohawk attacked the Isle of Orleans, where they kill 75 Huron. 
and they take many more captive. They put them in their canoes and paddled right by the governor of New France. He was helpless to do anything about the situation. To the west, all the other Iroquois-speaking neighbors of the Huron gone by the mid-1650s, again either scattered or absorbed or murdered by the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederacy. Furthermore, at the Grand Council of the Confederacy, the Mohawks request from the Grand Council permission to slaughter the entire French settlement at Onondaga. Now, the French there receive word of this happening from the Huron captives among the Onondaga people. A plan was quickly hatched among the French to hold a massive feast with all their supplies, invite all of the Onondaga and any of their visitors, and make this feast a party so grand that the dancing and the food being shoved in their mouths would exhaust them, and everyone would go to sleep back in their longhouses so that there would be nobody around to witness them quickly preparing to run away. The sources say that the French disappeared just hours before the Mohawk arrived. The peace was coming to an end, and the raids began once more in the St. Lawrence. And even during a short truce, at the end of this year, three Iroquois visited Montreal on friendly terms. Instead, they took it as an opportunity to shoot one Frenchman off his own roof, one Jean saint Paris. He was up there thatching a leak. They cut off his head to take as a trophy, of course, ruining the truce. And now we enter an era of hysterics, of visions and prophecies and omens, because one settler by the name of Dollar de Caisson reported that he heard a tale from the Iroquois, that the head that was taken back to the Iroquois village as a trophy, while on a pike, began speaking and threatening divine vengeance, and supposedly the voice was still heard in the village after the skull was smashed in, turned to bits, and burned. Now what's the truth here? Maybe the Iroquois got spooked by something and then the story got elaborated. Maybe it actually did happen, that's always possible. Or maybe the entire story was made up, a fiction, in order to encourage the residents of Montreal that God was on their side. Because Montreal didn't have much else going for it in the year 1656 into 1657. The original founders were now getting quite old or already dead, and the deep pockets that funded the secret organization that founded Montreal were all tapped out. Montreal, without funds or leadership, was handed over to the Catholic Sulpician Order. And despite the Iroquois attacks, Montreal would continue to grow, including having their first comprehensive schools, their first hospitals, and by 1660 or so, the place was definitely a real city, by anyone's reckoning. The rest of the colony on the St. Lawrence would be reinvigorated with new leadership around the year 1658. The Catholic Church, being a huge component of the government in New France, decided to formalize their positions in the area by assigning it what they called an apostolic vicar. While not yet awarding New France the title of its own diocese, and so the apostolic vicar would not be a bishop, this would be good for the papacy because the vicar would report right to the Pope, whereas French bishops at the time had their own national hierarchy to answer to primarily. And this is where Father Laval enters the story. A young man to be a vicar, he came from both the noble houses of Laval, of course, and Montmorency. Very well connected, very pious, and very driven. Now, at this time, the church also made him a bishop, but a bishop over no specific diocese, no territory assigned to him. His servants reported that he slept on a hard bed full of fleas. He would eat moldy food at times. 
Meanwhile, he would donate a massive amount of his family money and the money that he would collect to the poor every year. But coupled with this was his own pursuit of power. And that power uh, was justified because it would be to meet the ends of the Catholic Church, which he thought should be supreme over all earthly governments. The historian Francis Parkman writes, His life was a long assertion of the authority of the church, and this authority was lodged in himself, in his stubborn fight for ecclesiastical ascendancy. He was aided by the impulses of a nature that loved to rule and could not endure to yield. Ooh, sounds spooky. And this is going to be problematic, because about the same time Laval comes onto the scene, New France also gets a new governor, also from a noble family, Governor Argenson, who proved his merit right away. A day after arriving, he had to chase an Iroquois raiding party out of Quebec. And so neither men were pushovers, neither were fans of negotiation or meeting somewhere in the middle. And so they just hated each other. They would argue over petty things like small little details of, of church service. Who would have the more prominent seat in church? Who would get to take communion first? Who would have the more prominent seat at the dinner table after church service? Because of this, it's known that some priests and other prominent members of New France society, New French society, I don't know, uh, just stopped inviting these guys over to their houses. Not just one or the other, just both of them. Laval, as it would seem, would take the more public and extreme uh, position in this case. He whipped a schoolboy once for saluting Governor Argenson before himself. And he would chastise priests for them offering incense to the governor in these services before offering it to fellow priests. Again, even on these small little symbolic levels that we today wouldn't consider significant at all, Laval wanted to establish that the church was supreme and above uh, the earthly temporal government. This rivalry would lead to a letter-writing campaign from both people and their individual sides uh, sending waves of letters over to France to different authorities on different levels to try to get the other side recalled, try to get the other side fired. These things, of course, take years. And so let's put that on the back burner for a second. Because here we are coming up on the year 1660, and New France is still being worn away by the Iroquois. But then they have their Remember the Alamo moment. The commandant of the Montreal garrison, Adam Delaird, organized a force of men and Huron refugees who were willing to fight. Some claim he was looking to pillage Iroquois raiding groups or trading caravans of their furs. Others claim he went on the offensive, which the French rarely did in this period. Either way, he and his men found themselves in a crudely built stockade, surrounded and greatly outnumbered by an Iroquois force. Knowing what their likely fate would be, they did not surrender. Instead, they fought to the death. Using all the powder and shot they had, they defended their small little stockade even after the Huron allies that they had abandoned them for the Iroquois side. Finally, it's said that one of the Frenchmen, maybe Adam himself, lit an entire powder cake, intending to throw it over the stockade walls, only for it to bounce off and fall back into the center of all the Frenchmen, effectively ending their resistance and allowing the Iroquois to swarm in and butcher everyone. Many French-language historians of New France Consider uh, the story of Adam Dallaire one of the most courageous moments of the century, fighting to the last man to defend Christendom, whereas some English language historians and native historians have depicted Adam Dallaire less so. But either way you look at it, he was a martyr for the cause, 
But the memory of Adam Dillard, no matter what the truth was, inspired the French people to dig in a little deeper. And so just as Jean Mance was a heroine, Adam Dillard would be a martyr. During the same month, May, right around May of 1660, the Jesuits record that the Christian Algonquins captured an adopted Iroquois, meaning that originally this captive may have been an Algonquian person himself, and so they were able to communicate quite easily with one another. The Jesuits baptized this captive right before he was burned to death by the Algonquins. And for this small little token of mercy at the very end of his life, he rewarded the Jesuits with information. He told them that 800 Iroquois, along with 400 allies of the Iroquois, were planning to attack Quebec, Quebec City specifically, kill the governor, then move on to Trois-Rivières, and then on to Montreal. If successful, this would effectively uh, end the French existence in the St. Lawrence. Those are the three nerve centers at this point in time. But the early warning prevented such a campaign. And so here we are in the year 1660, and between Adam Dillard and our Iroquois captive, New France will be safe for now, at least from an Iroquois attack. By the time fall rolls around 1660, the inattentive company of 100 associates that supposedly own New France send over an official, and his last name is Dumisnil. And I'm going to pronounce it like that. And don't take offense, French people, because that's how I want to say it. Dumisnil was tasked with inspecting the state of the colony. Remember, they're a long way from old France, and they're only relying on letters written by the officials currently in power in France to know what's going on over there. Dumisnil was to be their eyes and ears, and he was invested with all the judicial powers necessary in order to complete that task. In modern American terms, he could be an arresting officer. He could be a prosecuting lawyer. He could be a judge. He could be the entire Supreme Court. He could be the judge, jury, and executioner. And with this vast stretch of powers, he expected to be given the respect due unto him. Of course, he was entering uh, a colony where the governor and the vicar, soon to be actual bishop of New France, wouldn't respect one another, let alone a third guy who would come in and start looking at all their dealings underneath the magnifying glass. And so immediately it's noted that nobody would respect Dumensil. Nobody would respect him. Nobody would acknowledge his authority, listen to what he would say, take his advice. Nothing. As happens so often in colonial history, what is written up in the home country and what actually happens once you're in the new world, very different things. He goes about his investigations anyway. And what he alleges he uncovered was a vast network of families and business relations who had co-opted the fur trade for their own benefit, essentially defrauding the company and using the resources of New France and the government of New France for their own illicit private gain while using their muscle to keep everyone else out of the trade. We do know that, in fact, the Supreme Council of New France, which I've covered before, uh, consisting of low-level elected officials, appointed city governors, and a governor of all of New France, along with Laval, did at some point spin off all the fur trade obligations and responsibilities onto a subcommittee. And then this subcommittee, also referred to as a council, simply became an independent entity with no oversight, either by 
the actual government of New France, which sought to give itself plausible deniability of the illegal trade, while probably benefiting through the back door, or the people on this committee did themselves separate themselves from the government of New France in order to carry on their trade and make their profit, squeezing everybody else out. But the community as a whole squashed his voice, wouldn't recognize him as any sort of authority, and his correspondences back to France were monitored quite closely. But he'll stick around for a while, and he will become a growing threat. So again, let's turn back to the Iroquois. Moving into the year 1661, the historian W. Eccles, he notes that 68 Frenchmen were killed during this year by the Iroquois, which doesn't sound like a lot. You know, it doesn't sound like that's going to end your world. But the entire French population of New France was only around 2,500 people, men, women, and children. 68 armed, fighting-aged men is significant. But the women at this time were no pushovers either. The French men and women and children, everyone there. After uh, now what's going to be 20 years of Iroquois attacks, some historians have described as a hardening process began to take place, where these French immigrants started to become Canadiens. They started to become French Canadians. They started to become New World citizens, tough and strong and courageous. Now, supposedly, in 1661, a party of 160 or so Iroquois were attacking the farms just outside of Montreal. One detachment was going to attack the farm of Barbie Duclos while her husband was working in the fields. She could see this out at a distance, but could find no way to warn her husband. And so she grabbed his gun and ran out, remembering what happened to her first husband. She ran between the Iroquois and her husband, but then proceeded to advance on them and chase them off, proclaiming at the top of her voice, I lost one husband to the Iroquois, and I will not lose another. But this was one engagement out of many that year, and the Iroquois played the long game. Former Governor Lausson still had a son in the colony. He was killed in a battle on the island of Orleans with seven others against the Iroquois. The Jesuits record this year concerning these Iroquois. These hobgoblins sometimes appeared at the edge of the woods, assailing us with abuse. Sometimes they glided stealthily into the midst of our fields to surprise the men at work. Sometimes they appeared at the houses, harassing us without ceasing, like incessant harpies or birds of prey, swooping down on us whenever they could take us unawares. To make matters worse, the worn-down Governor Argenson asks for his own recall, which surely pleased Laval, but put the colony in a very precarious position. Of course, maybe we could see some direction from old France. No. This very same year, 1661, Cardinal Marazin, the power behind the throne, dies from the gout. Both old and new France will have to go through a dangerous transition period. Perhaps now... Our Inspector General, Dumisnil, will fill that power void and get the respect he deserves. No. Throughout the years 1661 and 62, his incessant accusations, which were probably pretty much on the ball, earn him death threats. Certain factions of different native groups and French groups were actively conspiring to kill him. And in fact, his own son was murdered in the streets in 1661. Eventually, in this span of two years, the new governor arrives one Baron Dubois de Avignon. Now, he had a 40-year-plus career as a soldier. He was an old man 
but he was burly and time-tested. He may have been more stubborn than Laval. So, of course, Laval hated him, and of course, he hated Laval. And so, under the new governor, the battle between the temporal and the spiritual powers continued to clash with one another. And this was a superstitious time. People could feel New France crumbling to bits. Even in the Jesuit relations this very same year, a meteor streaked across the sky, which they took as an omen. It recorded, Blazing serpents which flew through the air, borne on the wings of fire. We beheld above Quebec a great globe of flame, which lighted up the night, and threw out sparks on all sides. This same meteor appeared above Montreal, where it seemed to issue from the bosom of the moon, with a noise as loud as a cannon or thunder. If you know your Bible, unusual happenings in the sky are often signals of things to come. Not always good things to come. Laval busied himself with banning the trade of liquor to the natives. Now, the importance of metal has been well noted in these trade relationships. But metal is durable, reusable. You can reform it. You can repurpose it. That's why it's so valued in the first place. Liquor is used up quickly and can't be replenished automatically. The fur traders and the government of New France argued that the liquor was essential to keeping the furs flowing. But eventually Laval, in all his power, managed to get the liquor trade to the natives completely banned. Of course, then the legal fur trade suffered greatly, caused an economic depression. Governor Avigior blamed Laval, of course, when wrote letters to such effect. Avigior, by this time, was sick of his counsel, and he threw out all the pro-Laval authorities in the government of New France. Back to our Inspector General Dumoncil. He starts breaking into houses to retrieve documents. Laval and Avigior uh, and everyone else in New France believes he's done something illegal. Dumoncil, as the sole judicial authority, uh, believes that he can do a warrantless search because he would be the authority that would issue a warrant. Dumoncil, by 1663, had compiled what he thought was a pretty impressive case arguing that the fur trade, which was supposed to support and benefit the habitants of New France, was again controlled by a tight, small, wealthy cabal. The governor writes up an arrest warrant himself for Dumoncil, who, getting advance notice of this, escaped on a boat back to old France, shifting back to the supernatural and the hearsay. February 4th, 1663, late at night, a nun by the name of Catherine de St. Augustine witnessed a vision of four demons on each corner of New France, rattling it to bits. The next morning, February 5th, an earthquake shook all of New France. The Jesuit relations record on this date that everybody was in the streets. Animals ran wildly about. Children cried. On that very same day, dozens of reports of supernatural or spectacular sights were seen both during and after the earthquake. At Tadassac, the traders there witness a tree-covered hillside slide straight into a river. Francis Parkman writes that the people began taking these signs as more than bad omens. They were visions of a coming Armageddon. Back to Governor Avigior. He imprisoned a woman who was selling liquor to the natives in order to feed her family. The Jesuits begged for her release. Avigior chastised them for conspiring to make the trade illegal and then turning around and asking for mercy when that law is enforced. And so by spontaneous decree, he made the trade in liquor to the natives legal once again. 
This spurred Laval to go back to France and try his very hardest to get the governor fired. What happened instead was far more profound. Up until this point, New France had been run by a series of companies who had the sanction of the King of France in order to operate in this vague colony known as New France, which was loosely claimed by the King of France. But here in 1663, the Sun King had come of age. Louis XIV would dissolve the company of 100 associates and assume power over New France himself directly as a royal colony. Just like that, the old order, which had been in place since the time of Jacques Cartier 130 years before, was gone. New France, under the direct eye of the Sun King, was to turn on a dime and become something it never was before, with a far greater reach, far greater population, that only a man like Champlain could have dreamed of, that will ultimately create massive continent-spanning wars, that before the end of the story of New France will spiral off into what some consider the very first world war. But, no spoilers for now. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.